find ourselves here again, uh, finishing out, rounding out, really, uh, this part of Ephesians, this last section of Ephesians chapter 5. This is the third pass we've made over this passage. Um, The first two uh, being related to carnal marriage or fleshly marriage, husband and wife. This final pass, we will address that which is concerning the spiritual and see the beauty of the spiritual marriage that is taught within it. But as we've come to this passage, I don't want us to lose what we've learned from before. So we got to bring in what we've learned from before, and really we bring in what we learn after this passage into our time of study this morning. And so we do look to this part of uh, Ephesians, and we see that the letter as a whole addresses the exalted Christ, specifically his display in heaven and on earth, that we saw that there was a heavenly witness to this exalted Christ in chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw that there was an earthly witness to this exalted Christ, namely his body, the church, that which was made uh, one from two uh, men, Jew and Gentile, into one humanity. And then these doctrinal realities form the basis for the second half of the letter, where in chapters 4 and 5, Paul turns to the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. And then when we get to chapter 6, we'll be looking at the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ, whereby Christ reigns in us here on earth and reigns over us in heaven and in the unseen realm, in the heavenly places. And so specifically, though, in chapter 5, the Spirit addresses this earthly reality of the exalted Christ through the lives of his children where in the first part of the chapter he addressed general precepts, referring to the Christian life as a walk. And now in verse 21 through the first part of chapter 6, he turns to more specific life situations that Christians will find themselves in. And as I've been pointing out that these interactions come under uh, after his, uh, this participle that we are to be filled in the Spirit. And so as it relates to being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, as that fourth participle in verse 21, this subjection is to be spirit-filled. And so the spirit works to fill us up. And Christ works to grow us, his body, as we relate to each other appropriately. And thus submission and respect and obedience must be addressed as self-sacrifice, discipline, and leadership must also be considered. It's these that give shape and texture to the sort of relationships within which we live together. And as we'll see this morning, the prime relationship is to us and Christ, and us corporately and Christ, so that we are one, his bride, and he is the bridegroom. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 through verse 33. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is 
the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help this morning. Well, Lord in heaven, we ask that as we come before your word, that we would be shaped by it, that your spirit would make it effective for your great and awesome purposes, that we, your people, your bride, may with great joy hear of the relationship we have to our bridegroom. And by that, Lord, you would work in us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers also. It is by Christ alone and in grace alone, by faith alone, Lord, that we ask these things and know that they will be according to uh, your will. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue to look at this passage under four headings, difficulty, definition, design, and direction. And one of the things as I was uh, thinking on how to present this to you, I was thinking of it, and it came to mind that uh, I, I remembered or I, I thought of this illustration of one of my favorite series of movies as a kid, which was Indiana Jones. And if you're familiar with the movies, it involves this archaeologist, and he goes to various exotic places searching out treasures. And the plot usually leads to rooms within rooms leading to other rooms. And certainly for the purpose of my illustration this morning, finding treasure in every one. And so much like Indiana Jones's search for the lost whatever, uh, our focus this morning turns us to scripture to see that scripture is much like that in in the present room of scripture in the first room of scripture we find much treasure and much joy as we read the words of God but in other rooms as as scripture leads us and teaches us to do so we find more treasure more lovely things that lead us into other rooms to more lovely things so that our hearts would be filled with God's word and God's intention that what his words would mean for us and what he meant when he gave them to us. 
And that really draws our attention to our first heading this morning of difficulty. Because we find that we address this morning the last difficulty of our passage is Paul's usage of the Genesis account in verse 31 where he quotes out of chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What was being signified with this citation and certainly the explanation of it as it relates to mystery in verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We might look at Genesis account and go, there's no mystery there. For this reason, a man will leave his home and be joined to his wife and they too shall be one flesh. But Paul says, yet there was something there. And we'll get to the definition of this idea of mystery here in a minute. But the idea is is that scripture tells us that it's there. And it always has been there. Early modern reformed exegetes agreed that scripture was to be read according to its literal sense. But discerning that literal sense did not mean for them as as it may mean for others or more modern interpreters... Simply reading the text. Our catechism, excuse me, our confession says something similar. It says in paragraph 9 of chapter 1, again, it, we know the flow of our confession. We're thankful for its wisdom that we, we, ask, we may ask ourselves, where do we get such truth to know that we may find peace with God? And the first place we know are the only place, sure places, uh, the sure place we have is Scripture. Paragraph 9 says, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched out by other places that speak more clearly. Here we have clarity speaking backwards to something that wasn't as clear as Paul says he's revealing the mystery to us but we see that there is a single sense of scripture and it's founded in the literal sense but the literal sense is not only contained according to the constraints of grammar history and uh, the literary method employed we must recognize that scripture has both human and divine authorship that we would not think it possible to properly interpret it merely by determining what the human author meant. But that we would understand that the literal sense is to be constructed or compounded. That is, the biblical texts have both a simple literal sense, that is what it, what it says, and that it consists of, and that consists of the immediate grammatical, historical, and literary meaning of the very words of Scripture, and a spiritual sense consisting of the meaning of the very words of Scripture in light of the full form and content of Scripture. And as one commentator said, these were inseparable but distinguishable. And the simple served the spiritual. Why? Because in the simple, we do address such things as the human author, his place and time of writing. We address his style of writing. We address his construction of the words and the grammar of the writing. 
but that is to serve the greater purpose, the greater uh, meaning, which only comes from the one who moves history, as I said in a previous study, that we're not just concerned with the one who writes history, but the one who orders history. And as I have leaned upon the interpretive work of Girolamo Zonchi, a late 16th century theologian, I give this excerpt from the introduction as an explanation, as maybe even a defense of what, uh, how I'm about to treat scripture this morning. Zanke read the Bible as part of a long tradition of interpretation stretching back to the church fathers and coming by way of medieval theologians, of whom he was both critical and appreciative into the 16th century. And so my intent this morning is to see the beauty of the unity of Scripture as it's found in the person of Christ. And so as we observed before in Christ, our earthly marriages only make sense when our union with Christ remains in view. And they are to point away from themselves and that we saw this as a delicious irony. As one author put it, he says that um, ultimately we can only understand and fully enjoy our earthly marriages when we view them in light of our spiritual marriage. Paul ends uh, the passage here on marriage with nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife as even as himself and the wife must see it to it that she respects her husband. Though Paul enters into the deep waters of doctrine of, of hermeneutics, of theology in this passage, he applies it at the end. He says, nevertheless, so shall you live. Understand these things. So shall you live. And so there's something for us to understand this morning by way of definition. The definition that I want to focus on is of this term mystery. Because Paul, in addressing Genesis 2, which we'll look at here again in a minute, he says that this mystery is great. Well, we can give definition to this idea of mystery because in other places he used it in this, um, in this letter. He says that there, it was a mystery that there would be an engrafting of the Gentiles. Well, that mystery was something that was a revealed secret, something which uh, up until now had not been made known and is not discoverable by unaided human reason. Paul understands that this mystery that he, he is alighted to is a mystery given to him by Christ. Certainly, uh, as, as other apostles who had direct contact with Christ, it would have been mysteries that would revealed by Christ in his earthly mission. For Paul, it was, it was probably something different, something done more by way of Christ's spirit, but nonetheless revealed by Christ and a revealed secret. The other, the one thing that we need to understand about this term mystery is that it doesn't mean um, completely hidden. Because a mystery has form. A mystery is something that you, you think about mystery novels or, or mystery theater. They put these things before you and you go, I think I understand who did it. 
or what's happening, or what that is. There's, there's a shadowy figure and you're, that always comes in, and you're like, I think I know who that shadowy figure is, because X, Y, and Z. It's a mystery, and the, I think that definition carries on into this idea of mystery, or, or vice versa. But the idea is, is that there's something to be known, though not fully known until the mystery is revealed. The other thing that we recognize, as another theologian put it, is that it's unavailable to the uninitiative. There is a reading of Scripture that's only given by the Spirit of God that's not available through humanistic or human means that we can teach ourselves just the rules of, of grammar, the, the history involved, and the literary method employed, and go... And, and know that anybody can use those methods, that they're available to everybody. And, and we, we actually praise that in Scripture. We say, anybody can read Scripture and know what it says. But until we've been given the Spirit of God, we, it, it opens Scripture to us in a fuller way so that we would not only know what it says, but understand what it means, and then also, surely, that we would be given the power to live accordingly. And so this mystery is a revealed secret that hadn't been made known up until this point and that it's not discoverable unaided by human reason alone. Knowing ahead of time that all the scriptures were about Jesus, as, as we read in Luke 24, 37, he says he opens all the scriptures to those uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and he shows them all these things because they were confused that this Christ was crucified and, and they're dismayed and, and Jesus comes alongside them and he says, have you not read the scriptures? And he says he opened all the scriptures to them and said, here I am, here it is. And so when Zonki read the Bible, he expected to find Christian theology and Christ himself in the texts of both the Old and New Testaments. So we, so we will see that, or so we can see that throughout the Old Testament, the marital union of Christ and the church was signaled by books such as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon especially by its employment of marital imagery for God's relationship with Israel. Just think of Hosea. Hosea employing the marriage gone sour to convey the notion of covenant breaking before God. And though the meaning within the text was not clear at their first giving, for they were but shadows and types we may venture to say that the faithful, based on Scripture's testimony about them, that the faithful would have, with Abraham, Moses, and Joshua, looked beyond the physical, beyond the simple, and toward the greater reality, toward the spiritual reality being signified. And so as we address it this morning, we're going to see that Paul says that they that these words signified a, a reality, but that reality signified a, another thing, a greater reality. And so we're going to see that in the design. As we've ventured through the difficulty and the definition, let's look at the design here that is employed and given to us. It comes by way of history and mystery. First, the history. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. 
Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. I'll read the word of the Lord for us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Paul uses specifically verse 24 here to expose the reality signifying a reality. He used the explanatory words in Ephesians 5.32 that this mystery is great, but I am referring to Christ, or this is referring to Christ and the church. One commentary rightly observes from the beginning God intended that human marriage that human marriage bond would typify the supreme union between Christ and the church and as marriage superseded all previous relationships so the union with Christ supersedes all other relationships Paul is not just saying hey earthly marriage is like this heavenly marriage he's saying He's not saying the heavenly marriage is like the earthly marriage. He's saying the earthly marriage is like the heavenly marriage because the heavenly marriage contract came before. We understand the covenant of redemption as being that covenant between uh, the Godhead whereby they would uh, send a redeemer to redeem a people for their own glory. Though we don't give any succession of time in the eternity of God, we recognize that as a theological construct to explain the decree of God, that one decree of the one true and living God. And acting out in history comes to us by way of these theological constructs and explanations so that before Eve was given to Adam, Christ was already betrothed to his people, or his people were betrothed to him. And so God lovingly, graciously, condescendingly gives us this picture of what he would do for us. And so when we see what he has done in the pages of scripture, we can go back here and go, oh, what beauty there is in the history God has ordained. And that history being revealed in Christ, we can see it in this revealed mystery. We'll look under this in the three motions of, our, of Genesis, and under sleep, under side, and under sameness. First, under sleep. 
Why did God create Eve from Adam in this particular way? Have you ever read the Genesis account and asked yourself that? I never really thought too much about it. I mean, God could have formed Eve from the dust of the earth like she did Adam. God could have formed Eve of whatever he wanted. But he decided to form Eve out of Adam's side. He also could have formed Eve from Adam's side without ever putting Adam to sleep. But he decided to put Adam to sleep in order to do so. God was not constrained by uh, anesthesiology or, or, or those things that we use in modern medicine. He was working miracle here. It was a miracle that he could take a rib from a man and form a woman. And we believe in that history. We trust that history. But in that history, there is a mystery. There is a revealed mystery. He did not want to do so. He did not want to do it in any other way on account of the mystery of the things to come. If we look at John's gospel account in chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, Jesus answered them, Jesus speaking, answering them, saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, listen what happens in the minds of the apostles when Christ raises from the dead. His disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. What, what scripture would they have believed? It would have been the Old Testament scriptures. They're saying they believed all that the Old Testament had said about him and the testimony of Christ, that he would die and be raised up in three days. Listen to the connection between sleep and death. Psalm 3. Well, let's, let's read Psalm 3 uh, together. It begins a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance of him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Listen to verse 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me. From his holy mountain. Could it be a precursor to Christ's cries on the cross to the Lord being heard by the Father? Verse 5 I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. And then I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. 
For the slumber, the deep sleep sent by God upon Adam was a type of Christ's death. For if the sleep of David described in Psalm chapter 3 was a type of Christ's death, which is how Augustine and after him Luther and others explain that passage as concerning the death and resurrection of Christ, how much more was the first Adam's slumber a time of a type of the second Adam's death? Why did Adam why why did God put Adam to sleep? to remove a rib and form Eve because he was showing forth what he would do through the sun. He was showing forth in mystery, in type and in shadow that the second added would come and lay down his life for his bride. Let's look at the side, the significance of the side. Again, the apostle John recording in chapter 19, beginning in verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe for these things come to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John is quoting Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This piercing of Christ produced salvation for the church. So also Christ wanted from his own side. And when John explained this mystery, as it were, he said that blood and water flowed from Christ's side, which truly is the substance of the church's salvation and regeneration. From his side, I say, Christ wanted the church to be created spiritually and thus to be made flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, so that those who would become the heirs of the heavenly kingdom, even the whole church, might all be of one head. What do we see in Adam being laid to rest and his side being opened so that Eve could be created? We see that Christ's side would be pierced, that there would be a piercing of the side of the second Adam. And in that piercing, there would be a new birth or there would be new life given to his bride. And what of the sameness there making reference at the end there of this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. John, again, so helpful here. John wrote, wrote with a keen eye of these things and he wrote in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and of truth. He began this prologue at the beginning speaking of God in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was created 
through this God. And he gets to 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 to understand this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was in that which he has suffered, he is also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and they who are sanctified, that is the church, all have one source. For just as Christ, no less than other men, is of the one Adam with regard to the nature of his flesh so are of the one children or so are of the one Christ flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones with regard to spiritual regeneration and so we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones that by him we might possess every heavenly blessing even to such an extent that no one can boast of possessing any heavenly blessings except that he possessed them by way of Christ, directed unto him by way of Christ himself as from a head. Brothers and sisters, human flesh, body and soul is at the right hand of the Father on high. He has taken human flesh where human flesh had not gone. Our advocate is in heaven. Our brother, our mediator, our likeness, our, we are his likeness, but our sameness, our flesh of flesh and bone of bone. 
has achieved the heavenly blessings. And so by the person of Christ, we too may have hoped to receive those in our flesh. We see that this understanding that Paul has brought to by way of the spirit of Christ, the unity of scripture to Genesis chapter 2. Where this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and and the church. As we look upon our earthly marriages, we see some semblance of what we have in Christ. And then we look to Christ and we look to his word and we see all that we have. That we may not despair in all our many weaknesses. That we exist and wallow in daily and weekly. The last heading is direction. And I thought it fitting that as we've had many things to direct us this morning as I've gone through this sermon, I thought it might be fitting to just come back to where we began. So let's bring what we've taken out of Scripture and bring it back to Scripture that we've been addressing And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also are so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, to which we say to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, to what joy you have given us your word that we may read it and understand what it says as you have given us minds to do so. O Lord, but what great joy we have that you have also given us your spirit, that we may enter into riches unknown. For we enter into your mind, your thoughts, Oh, Lord, we thank you for Christ who has revealed such mysteries to us that we may come to your word anticipating to find him 
knowing that he is the scope of your word because by him we are redeemed and reconciled to you. We thank you that you have brought us by, by way of Christ's flesh into your presence, that you have guaranteed us our place through the giving of your spirit, that through union with the second Adam, we have sure life. May we rejoice in our marriage. May we take joy in also the marriages that you've given us here in this age. And we thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name.